Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources in veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, welcome to episode 18 of Hired the Smile. I'm Mike Pownell, and as usual, I'm joined by Katie Arline. Hey, Katie. Hey, Mike. So today we are doing something a bit different. Usually we talk about some research articles or something that's in the news, but we have a special guest that really ties into the vet profession and HR and things that we've been talking about recently, like burnout and employee engagement, and that is Dr. Ivan Zankarekov. Ivan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. And thank you for pronouncing my last name fully. <laughs> oh, it's only three I syllables, understand. four syllables. I don't know. So we're good. We're good. So, Ivan, you've completed an MBA. You've done some interesting research. You've been in the veterinary news quite a bit. Tell us about your research and what you've discovered about burnout in the vet profession. Uh, yeah, so there were three main findings. We deployed the survey and used the uh, professional fulfillment index, and uh, that's sort of a commonly used uh, survey that you can do to gauge the burnout in a group of people or individual. And um, there was 1,500 respondents or close to. And the three conclusions that we could make from the data, one was that, yes, we are burned out. And it's a no-brainer and everybody talks about it, but I was trying to make sure that it's not so, sort of like shark attack news. You know, you hear about one, but there's not many happening. So yes, it is true. Statistically, we are burned out and it's a serious problem in the profession. The second finding, uh, which I didn't expect, was interesting that a younger professionals, veterinarians and specifically, are burned out more and specifically about 30 and under. And those that are closer to retirement, 60, 65, or the baby boomer sort of generation, they're happier. So that was an interesting finding. And the third one, it turns out that the technicians or nurses, depending on where you're uh, located, are burned out more than veterinarians, which was uh, not sort of a surprise to me, but it was good to highlight that because I was suspecting that that's the case. Interesting. Fascinating. I want to dig into all of those in depth in a little bit. But first, I want to hear about you. You've got an interesting uh, path here, and I want to hear about that because I think it really ties in everything there. You know what you're speaking of. <laughs> well, uh, maybe the fact that I burned out myself uh, at some point maybe brings me there, but uh, I'll give you a brief maybe story how I got here. Uh, vet by trade uh, myself and, uh, and graduated from Atlantic Vet College uh, somewhere in 2006, I think. And I uh, had exposure to multiple, multiple workflows in hospitals because uh, my passion was in the critical care and ER. So I was the night guy. Uh, I do think that the night guys are the ones that burn out more than others. 
and also did a lot of locum work. So I uh, I worked in between the night shifts. I worked as locum and relief work in uh, beautiful British Columbia for a while, and then in Ontario. And uh, along the way, bumped into a couple of things that I hated about the workflow in the veterinary hospital. So partnering up with my high school friend, we built uh, SmartFlow, which is a workflow optimization system that we then uh, sold to IDEX. And at IDEX, I was a GM of their software division for one year. And then uh, not feeling it in the corporate world, <laughs> left and created veterinary integration solutions. Along the way, I decided to, uh, as you mentioned, to do an MBA. And then the uh, dissertation that I wrote upon uh, graduation from MBA was uh, on the topic of trying to combat burnout with the business methodology. And I spent about a year and a half researching lean uh, in the healthcare, and that's uh, the widely implemented uh, methodology in healthcare and visited some hospitals, uh, San Francisco General, Hopkins in uh, in Baltimore. So it was it was pretty interesting journey and learning how they uh, how they optimize workflow and the experience of the healthcare workers. And then that resulted in this sort of dissertation where I was trying to map the business onto burnout and how to prevent it. Absolutely fascinating. I know when I did my own MBA, I, I, uh, one of the things you and I have in common is I discovered lean as well too. And you've taken it to another level, which is amazing because it is something that's really profoundly impacting the human medicine field in, in, in a great way. And I'm really happy to see it being applied to the vet profession as well too. So I want to go back to your research. Maybe we can start with first from your research, what is causing the burnout? And then maybe we can get into the specific ages and, and roles. But is there a couple of factors, three factors, one factor? What is causing burnout? So basically, I, I think I, I went a little deeper into the whole topic of burnout. And, and, and as I mentioned, and I didn't mention in, in my story, but uh, in 2009, uh, so it's just three years out of vet school, I uh, burned out myself severely. I had to leave the profession for a while to recover. And then sort of 10 years later, uh, that was the topic sort of close to, to heart. And that's why I, I approached it. But uh, I found the best explanation of burnout uh, through the triggers that were identified by a mass light. And that was in the late 70s, I think, or 80s. So there's six yeah. classic triggers uh, that can happen in professional work environment that lead to burnout. And, and they are, and a lot of people think it is just a lot of work, which is one of them. So work overload is, is well recognized as one of the triggers, but there's really six of them. So in addition to work overload, uh, there's lack of control. So if you don't provide the autonomy uh, to people that do the work that can lead to burnout, Value conflict. If your personal values are not aligning with the values of the organization, that, that is usually a cause. Insufficient reward, and it's not necessarily monitoring. So if you do a lot of work and, uh, and then you feel like it's taken for granted, uh, a lot of the times when I reflect back on what happened to me, writing medical records really feels like that after hours. Mm, that, yeah. uh, that is just a useless task that you're spending hours and hours on. Yeah. Unfairness. So an unfairness in the organization when there's favoritism, when there's sort of, uh, you know, selective attitude towards certain roles or different compensation on a certain uh, level and the breakdown of the community. So if the organization doesn't have the feedback system or feedback loops or candor feedback uh, in the organization or there is no conflict resolution. So those are the six classic triggers that can cause burnout in the organization. 
That's wonderful. Yeah, we uh, we talked about that in one of our recent episodes of Hire the Smile as well, too. Mm. The same triggers. And I used to think people just aren't resilient enough or they're not accepting the right kind of people in the vet schools or what have you. But that really changed my perspective that so much of this is the balance between the person and the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And th- this is why I focused on it so much now because, you know, there's so much information on how to take care of yourself, the mindfulness practices, which is now really becoming um, mainstream, which is great. Uh, and then, you know, how to do work-life balance and all of those things. But uh, I think that's a huge part of it. But there's another part that we as business, as owners of the hospitals as the executive teams of consolidation and everybody who's in management need to really pay attention and whether they do work against these triggers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what really hit home for me was, you know, you sort of always think, oh, this person's burned out, just let them have extra time off, you know, extra PTO or vacation or whatever. And the part that was missing for me is they're coming back to the exact same environment that burnt them out in the first place. So unless you as as a um, practice understand how you are contributing or how the workflow or whatever the, the factors of those six factors are that are contributing, unless those things change, people taking time off isn't going to make it any better. And often they feel guilty because they're taking time off and their colleagues are still working and they're getting more burnt out. So it's it's a really a vicious cycle. And I hear that, you know, I do a lot of talking to folks that work at clinics and they say that over and over, like, I can't take time off. You know, the vets are taking time off, you know, and you're talking about it here in a little while. But I hear a lot about, you know, the vets have a three day week and they do their hours, but the techs are there all the time and they feel like they just can't take the time. Uh, And I think that's a huge problem. But it was really this really eye opening for me to kind of dig down into the burnout a little bit more and take it away from the fault being the fault or being a frailty of an individual versus it's a systemic thing. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I, you know, the, what what you mentioned there is, uh, is sort of, to me, is a classic uh, separation in those two definitions, the, the compassion fatigue and burnout, because mm-hmm. compassion fatigue is the one that you don't take home. And if you take extra time, and you can recover from it, taking a vacation, and you, you know, it's something that you dissociate yourself with the patient and the empathy is not there. But when you go home, it's not with you. The burnout is, you know, is more of, yes, it doesn't matter how much time you take off, if the environment doesn't change you, you're not going to be happy mm-hmm. yeah that's an interesting uh, separation there so katie brought up some ideas about you know tech burnout but what did your research tell us about or tell you rather about why techs burn out the most they're the biggest cohort of burnout well, unfortunately, the the I think it's more my experience told me why they burn out more rather than the 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 research because research just highlighted that that out of those fifteen hundred people, those that were technicians uh, were ranked a little higher on the burnout than the veterinarians. But the reality is because I was exposed to so many setups of the hospitals through my veterinary career, and that, you know I worked in over I think thirty five or forty hospitals as a vet. But then also while at SmartFlow, we implemented it in over six hundred hospitals. So I really had exposure to multiple multiple settings, and then everywhere you know you can see that that the technicians are the ones that do the work. And, you know, I, I know that I'm not favorite for many veterinarians, but I'm saying, look, we actually don't do the work. It's sort of my license is coming in into the hospital. Mm-hmm. I sign papers, talk to the clients. They do the work. I mean, surgery, fine. But, yep. you know, but to prepare for that surgery, to clean after that surgery, it's always the tech. So that's why when I was a locum, that was my uh, only sort of, you know, something to lean on is is the technicians. They know all the workflows. They do everything. You just show up. And, uh, and I could see how we don't appreciate them enough. They're compensation if you go back 
back to the classic triggers again, not enough compensation taken for granted, work overload, unfairness, all of that stuff goes back to, you know, why they burn out more. And you can yep. clearly see it. Absolutely. And the millennials, I was interested to see that millennials are more susceptible to burnout between all the ages of veterinarians. And any reasoning behind that? That's my favorite topic. I don't know if you heard uh, Simon Sinek talking about absolutely. The yeah, that's a great. That's a great <laughs> talk. Yeah, that yeah. was uh, yeah, that was an eye opener for me. But I actually put together uh, this sort of overview of the industry and kind of look into the five years and how they there's three sort of trends of changing. There's the the clients are changing, the vets are changing, and the consolidation is changing our industry. Plus, there's a sort of catalyst on top of that, an accelerator of change is COVID. But specifically with vets changing, that's that's what I like to talk about is that now it's mostly millennials. And if you'll think about millennials, it's narcissistic people with a feeling of entitlement and a very short attention span if there's no rapid goal achievement. And they don't want to stick around for too long and value work-life balance. So if you think about it, the profession as we see it, you know, if you take the James Harriet and see that you, you know, you graduated, you worked as a vet, you died as a vet. And then this is not the character how I think right now a new generation is taking the career in general. Uh, they're pushing through the vet school and then they think, okay, I'm just going to push this. And then when I graduate, I'm going to be well paid and then I'm going to, you know, take time off. Uh, but then the management is pushing them further. So we don't, and if you think in practice, it's very hard to set the goals. Like how do you set the goal to a veterinarian other than the revenue? And vets hate to talk about the revenue. So how mm. do you really set rapid goal achievement at work? And you have to do it frequently. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to be empowered and engaged and uh, ultimately burn out. Yeah, I will say to the benefit of the millennials is that, you know, I, I think it's easy for us to pick on the millennials. I blame their parents. <laughs> I totally, <laughs> because, you know, I think so many in, in that generation has been a, a generation of shielding younger people from the realities of life. You know, we hire a lot of young people in our practices and we're involved in a lot of other practices. I think many of these young people are ill-prepared, no fault of their own, but through vet school, through their parenting, through elementary school, what have you, high school, nobody has told them no or, you know what, some things, there, there are some crappy people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and so they've spent their whole lives studying, studying, and a path has been cleared for them to excel at high school and university, and they get into vet school. You know, I can talk about my own alma mater and, you know, they, they really, really like you're special, you're special, everything is great. They're clearing this path and then they have their first day in practice and then they get a client that goes, I don't agree with that. And I don't think they've ever had the coping tools to go, oh, okay, that's the first time ever. Or you have a boss that, you know, demands things. And I know we have had people that start with us uh, out of, you know, an internship and this is really their first real job they have ever had. And that's hard for them, really hard for them. So, yeah, I think I, I think it's interesting, but, but unfortunately, I don't think we can ask their parents to tell their kids to work better. <laughs> so, no, so we no. need to find the path to these guys. I've heard stories. I've heard people from you know who have interns, and that parents are calling up and saying, "You're not being nice to my child." Oh wow! And I'm like, "You're not setting up your kid for success." Like, sorry, <laughs> no. you're not. So wow. Anyway, Katie, over to you. 
Yeah. So I'm interested in this idea of uh, applying lean thinking to maybe help alleviate some of these triggers for burnout or these levers, I guess, for burnout. Can you talk a little bit about how you see how lean can benefit things? Because I know, to be perfectly frank, when uh, Mike was doing his MBA and he got on the lean kick, <laughs> I was working at his practice at the time. It seemed a bit incongruent to me. Uh, you know, we always sort of think, oh, vet medicine is like very unique and there's no way we can, you know, put it in a box and have repeatable outcomes comes, uh, which is what my sort of understanding of lean is. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the two things integrating? Yeah. So the same feeling as I had. And, and the way I bumped into lean myself, it was after building SmartFlow, I bumped into this new theory of eliminating, you know, redundant processes and all this. I thought I discovered something, then it turns out that it's been out there for more than 50 years. <laughs> and of course, someone else came up with it and it's called lean. But I became fascinated with it. And I started, you know, down from like The Goal, which is a book about the theory of constraint, and then just understanding, you know, how the manufacturer applied this. And then I and I started looking into the healthcare and thinking, how did they do this? And my, uh, if if you look at the uh, Chip Ponsford, a uh, veterinarian who wrote a, a Lean Vets uh, book, it's interesting. It's at the level of the veterinary hospital. And a lot of it is, it's not only... Um, because when people talk about lean, a lot of people think about eliminating waste. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you say that, people think we're going to fire people and, you know, yeah. and, and we'll be lean on staff. It's not really about that. And then when I researched it more in the human healthcare, they actually applied a lot of practices from lean in the hospital. And the first guy who I think did it at scale, it was um, uh, John Tassant, who, uh, who inspired me actually to do this in veterinary domain. Uh, he applied it to the healthcare system in Wisconsin, and he was a CEO of, of the healthcare system. And then it worked for like a year or two. And then people just stop using the systems. They stop using the, the process because the process without purpose doesn't work. And that's what he discovered. And then the, he went back and he rewrote sort of the principles of lean for the human healthcare. And the most important thing is not how mechanically you say, you know, turn left, right, do this, you know, don't waste time uh, or inventory or things like that. It was about the principles of how do you approach this. And the most important one that I focused on, it was, uh, it was well, a couple. One, uh, lean is the unity of purpose. You have to create the purpose behind your organization so people understand why they're doing it. Because you can create any process in the world, but if you don't have the purpose, there's nothing to follow. Yeah. Then respect for people who do the work. This is another lean principle that is very important. And that's really paying attention, not just, you know, I respect you, but it's when someone has an opinion and you really hand it off to the people that provide the work, like, like technicians, and then you allow them to create this culture of continuous improvement. When you think about changing something in the practice, there's a huge resistance to change from the veterinarians, from the technicians and everybody else. And that's why I talk about it in a consolidation uh, scenario, because someone else comes in and starts doing change and we hate change. Mm. And then when you start pushing change and talk about change management and best change management practices, this is all great. But then if people don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. So cultivating the culture of continuous improvement, which is another principle of lean, is basically allowing people to say, how can I improve my work today so I can do things more efficient, so I can go home on time and do other things and then implement it in the hospital. Then they own these processes. And then you really allow them to, to be autonomous, which is, again, one of the triggers for burnout is not having an autonomy at work. 
So there's a couple more that is lean is value creating. Uh, you have to have it visual. You need to understand because you can explain things to people as many times as you as you want. But if you're not visualizing what are the effects of what you do, then you're not gonna you're gonna have people buy in. And that goes back to millennials and goal achievement. So it's really behind the uh, principles rather than mechanical process. It's just implementing those principles that people will follow. And then after that, you implement process. Yeah, I really like that. I like that idea of, you know, respecting the people who are doing the work. And I see that as, you know, not asking them to do something really redundant. You know, like I was just talking to a practice recently about how they are, uh, cataloging their use of controlled drugs and they're like doing it in five places. And it's like, well, what do we actually need to do here? And there's, is there really a point? And, you know, I mean, they might do it because they, for whatever reason, the hospital needs that extra check and balance or whatever, but is this actually required or is this just an extra step? And there's so much potential for extra steps in veterinary medicine. You know, I remember answering the phones and, you know, all the questions you had to ask. And it's like, are, are all these actually adding value for the client uh, or are they just things that we want to know because we want to know them? So really like that. And of course, the culture of continuous improvement. And having people involved, you know, so often you hear the vet said that we're doing it this way and we're doing it this way. And they're like, we're the ones who are actually doing the work and it doesn't work that way. So, you know, having that respect to say, well, do you think this is something that's possible or not? I think is huge. There was a great example at Boston General Hospital about empowering the people. So there's two hospitals that I was really impressed. One in San Francisco, their CEO, we went to sort of lean uh, for executive level uh, training there. And their CEO, first of all, she has the board in which all everything she does throughout the week is visible to everybody next to her office. Everybody knows what the CEO is doing that day. And then also in Boston General Hospital, there was an in-emergency room. There was a sign uh, which said, don't void before seeing a doctor. And basically, they wanted to keep the urine sample so people don't go to the bathroom. But then people would always go to the bathroom and they mm. would never really have, you know, urine to submit. So they have a Spanish speaking nurse who said, can you change the sign from void to pee? Just put don't pee before seeing the doctor. And then they changed it. And it was her sign. She owned it. And she was super proud of it. And they, it was complete change because people <laughs> understood. So it was very simple. But they empowered the person to make a suggestion. They made a change. And that person owned the process and the workflow. And then she was empowered by that. That's a great example. Really great. Yeah. So you, you touched upon change and consolidation. And, and boy, I think of the hottest topic in veterinary medicine right now anywhere is the consolidators that are coming in, various types, whether it's, you know, the, the Mars or every, every continent, every country has groups buying up vet practices. So tell us about how you're working with these consolidators and I guess what you're trying to get across to them by implementing lean methodologies is, is going to help them. So tell us about that. Yeah, so so basically what, what I realized is that uh, if lean or any other methodology can help veterinary profession, then to apply it at scale, uh, it would be very hard. Let's say we changed five clinics, 50 clinics that you can do, but we have 32,000 clinics in North America only. And to make it while, uh, widely acceptable, I looked at the human healthcare and I realized that to apply any methodology, you need an organization that can apply it at large. 
And when you go to Boston General Hospital, there's a couple thousand people that work there. And then any healthcare system, Wisconsin healthcare system, you have a central management structure, you have executive team departments, you have the structure where you can deploy new things. In veterinary clinics, you would go one by one. So even though I love uh, Chip Ponsford's book about lean vets, that's for veterinary practice, for one practice where you can potentially apply it. So I looked at consolidation and, and you know, everybody, uh, you know, there, there is a negative connotation about the consolidation and in many cases, rightly so. But I realized that there is a very direct connection where if the consolidators will focus on implementing some sort of methodology, they can do it at scale because these organizations have, you know, 50, 100, and thousands of hospitals. And then it can also benefit them. And where I'm talking about benefit is that right now, the biggest problem of the veterinary practice is that they were acquired with the purpose not to get rid of veterinarian, but keep him or her for the next five or 10 years. Then if you lose that person right post acquisition, because this person is burned out or disappointed, or you triggered many of these six triggers, then they will leave. And all the thesis that you had for your investors based on arbitrage, okay, you could probably execute that, but on the margin expansion through workflow optimization, if you lose a provider, forget about 2% improvement. You're losing the entire provider that brings the revenue. So I see that there is a connection where the heartless, I hopefully nobody is listening, but uh, heartless <laughs> consolidators that are interested only in money now will see that there is a complete business sense in improving the experience of the veterinarians so they stay and are happy to do the work. So this is where I think the business will connect with the experience and it will benefit consolidation in improving the margin. It will keep the veterinarians happy and stay in those hospitals. And I think the industry will benefit as a whole. I love your approach because there's a segment of these groups that they want to buy low and sell high. And it's all about money. And fine, that's their business. And But I think what you're showing is there's a very strong business case that what they can do is actually going to make them more money but actually make the vet practices even better too. So they're actually doing something good for the profession. Absolutely. And and the the interesting thing is that the the type of consolidators are also changing. We had Bob Lester on the webinar yesterday and uh, he wrote an interesting article about missionaries and mercenaries, uh, the consolidators. Mm -hmm. And um, basically right now, uh, the, the arbitrage game is coming to the end where you can just buy practices, merge them together and resell them. Uh, it was sort of in the early Benfield VCA at the beginning, it was possible. Then there was NVA with a new value proposition. We're not going to change anything. But you can't improve the bottom line if you're not going to change anything. You need to change something. Then there was a pathway, sort of a bigger one that came into play. And then they said, we're not going to change anything. It's all about veterinarians. It's questionable whether they executed on that. But now you see more and more people turning back and saying, can we just buy the practice from someone and make them work for us? And be happy? Or should we keep incentives behind? Should we leave some equity in their hands? Should we improve something so they're staying? So there's less and less practices. And we see that in Europe, there's 60 plus, well, at least in Great Britain and in uh, Netherlands, there's 60 plus percent consolidated. And in North America, we're at 20 plus. So we still have a window of opportunity here where the arbitrage will be happening. These private equity firms, they have to get return on investment in three to five years. They just have to. So you can't really sell to someone who is a private equity funded and hope that they're going to improve your experience. You just need to understand that their thesis is to buy and sell as quickly as you can.
But what will happen in the next five to 10 years, these consolidators will sell to the bigger consolidator like family firms like Mars and JAB. And they don't anymore have that, uh, that margin on the arbitrage. They will have to focus on operational efficiency. And you can't focus on operational efficiency without having bets. So I think that evolutionary, it will improve. But I think we have an opportunity to help these consolidators to focus on the experience. Yeah, no, you're uh, 100% agree with you. I love the companies that have that longer term vision because, you know, then they can spend the time and work with these practices. And the biggest asset these practices have are their people. There's a, a couple of quick fixes. Yeah, you can, you know, consolidate your, your bookkeeping and you can maybe buy a little bit better. But the real value is, is, is taking care of your people for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I mean, there's a couple instruments that they implement, you know, with vendor management and the back office, but even those are, you know, they're changes. If you think about it, when the consolidator comes in the door and says, we're not going to change anything, you, you know, do you, you're a veterinarian. Well, then when you change your uh, provider or the distributor that you're buying from, maybe the medication that you trust more than the other in the same category now taken away because it's cheaper to buy it from another distributor. And that's sort of the changes that are subtle that they don't explain up front. And I think that this is very important to become very transparent about your thesis, stand by those, articulate your values in the organization. And if they are to buy many practices and sell them, many of the veterinarians might want that. You know, if they want to exit within five years, and if your thesis are to sell in five years, and if I roll my equity into your organization, I know I'm going to benefit. And I just need to suck it up for five years and then, you know, and then gain my retirement and, and be happy. So I think it's just all about the transparency of what they're going to the practices with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ivan, this has been fascinating. I've been following since you started publishing your your research because I, I just love what lean thinking can do for just the profession, but also the people in the profession. And I think that, you know, with what we're doing at Oculus and the Hire the Smile podcast, that's what we're all about. As I said, your people are your biggest asset. Take care of them. Your business will do much better. And really what makes every practice special is the uniqueness of the people in it. So thank you very much and, and good luck. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me, guys. And, uh, and good luck with, uh, with uh, Oculus. Thanks. Veterinary practice would be so much easier if all we had to do was treat our patients. Instead, we also have to deal with the realities of running a business, keeping and retaining staff, attracting new clients, and maintaining profitability, to name just a few. Veterinarians also struggle with managing the always-on mentality clients expect of them while trying to maintain a livable work-life balance while also managing student debt. When you add in the uncertainty and volatility of the world outside our vet practices, the business aspect of veterinary medicine can take away the pleasure of being a veterinarian, practice owner or manager. Fortunately, we have a solution. Advice by Oculus provides online personal performance coaching and business advisor sessions that are convenient, accessible, and confidential for the veterinary profession. Personal performance coaching can help anyone develop confidence, motivation, and engagement. Your coach helps you identify what is holding you back and how to overcome these obstacles so you can reach your full potential. If you are struggling with your career and the negative impact on your personal life, personal performance coaching is for you. We all know it can be very lonely leading and managing a business. Often we find ourselves having to make decisions that can have a significant impact on finances, staff, and the overall health of the business without the confidence 
that we have considered all options before making our decisions. Having a personal business advisor with the experience and education for veterinary business management can help you clear a path to business success. We have been in your shoes and know what it takes to move forward. Advice by Oculus. Consider it like telemedicine for your business or career. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.